Bleedbury Griffo? Hello, hello, Marsha. Griffo, right? Not Graffo. It, it's a village. It doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah, people, some say Graffo, some say Griffo. One woman introduced me on stage as, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dave. Really? Yes, fantastic. Because she just couldn't... She asked me what my name was. She said, I'm going to put you on stage. She's an American woman, actually, at an airbase. And she said, I'm going to put you on stage. What name is it? And I said, Boothby Graffo. And she said immediately, Boothby Graffo? Okay. And that was the first time anybody had actually sort of said the name perfectly afterwards. And I said, yes, great. She went, okay. And then just before she went on stage, she said, Boothby Graffo, right? And I said, yes. She said, okay. She went on, took the microphone and said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your entertainment tonight, Dave. What's your second name? <laughs> No, throws her out. Yeah, well, it was really. There was only about four people in the crowd. Why did you do the name change? I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com, and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long form interviews with stand up comedians that eventually inspired the book. Off the Mic, the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Why did you do the name change? Mm. Oh, no, so you named yourself after this village, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we saw, I was just, I made some photographs and it was in the early days of computer printing. Robert McKinnon was just patching into NASA on a 512k modem and I you could computer print your name onto these pictures and I didn't have a name and we were driving from... Nottingham to Skegness. Why would anybody want to do that? And uh, we passed all these different names along the way. And it was quite literally the first thing you see when you look out the car. So, Boothby, you've come in, amongst other things, to talk about this show that you're doing. Oh, yes. On the 1st of April at Leicester Square Theatre. I was kind of surprised to hear about this because there's something else I was surprised to hear about. So when I first got into stand-up, it's when I lived in Edinburgh and... There was sort of, you know how when you, certainly in Edinburgh, you kind of have like the different levels of stand-ups. It's almost like the A-list, B-list shifts. And so instead of A-list, B-list being, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, the A-list would be like, you know, Dave Gorman and Ed Byrne. But when I first started, it was like Tommy Tin and Johnny Vegas, you. So in my head, I always kind of think of you as that, you know, and still all the stuff that you've done since then. And then I heard that you'd retired from stand-up. Yeah, marginally, yeah. What's that? I just got lucky. I just got lucky. A manager of mine a long time ago said to me, your problem is that you're lazy, which I never considered a problem. I am very, very lazy. And the reason I work so much, I did used to gig, you know, weekends would be uh, sometimes five and six gigs a night on a busy weekend. But yeah, I used to work an awful lot because I needed the money because the house I couldn't afford and kids and things like that. That doesn't sound like laziness to me. Oh, no, it is. It is because if I had not had to work, then I wouldn't have worked. And recently I'm just, you know, I am blessed. I'm starting to believe in God or Allah or Yahweh or Buddha or one of them but I've just got very lucky so I don't actually need the money so I don't work all that you know fight for the right to work well I always thought that was just crap I remember I met a guy years ago John Rand as a playwright he was driving a lorry at the time he was the most incredible man I met him for about four hours and he's stayed with me ever since I was only 16 and I remember him saying we were talking about the miners strike and he said he couldn't understand why the miners were fighting for the right to do that god-awful job, to look forward to silicosis and just your entire life and then your children going on following me, why they should be blowing up the mines, not fighting to keep them open. And that stayed with me. And when people, I hear people saying, you know, you have the right to work and people have dignity in work, it's a nonsense. You know, you don't, you don't have to work. There's no need for you to work. So just relax, people. Stop it. But then don't you find it doing nothing... Some people find it soul-destroying. Well, yeah, but you see, they're not as lazy as I am. I, <laughs> I am wicked and lazy. 
And the thing is, that you work all day. Don't you? I mean, you work very hard. Are you a stand-up as well? No. I was going to say when you said you got into comedy, I didn't. Oh that. no, no, no! I just mean like interested in. Okay, it. yeah, because you work quite hard. You work very hard, I'm sure, doing what you do. Everybody works really hard to get that money to do what? To buy food to eat, a heat for your house, somewhere to live, etc. And you see, if you grow things like potatoes and carrots and vegetables that you eat. That takes you a good day to prepare the land and, and you know, weeks and months. But what, but all that work you put in, it's like you go to work, they give you money and you use that money to get this stuff. Whereas the stuff is actually available without the money. You just have to work to get it. That's what I mean. I think our work, what we do as humans seems to be things like IT, what I do. You know, it's just, it's, it's, there's nothing there. It's for the sake of it. But actually, if you were working in IT or an accountant... Yeah, or I'm sorry, I don't mean to then, be rude to people no, no, who no, work no, no, in no. IT. But I if just you, think you're wasting your lives. But, <laughs> but if you were doing a job like that, then I'd go, OK, I hear you. But actually, you're doing something that people will do for free. And, you know, certainly even with my work... Well, that I often do. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? That, it's, but, but that it isn't something that people just do for the... But no, no, it isn't. And, I, and do, I do do it for free. I mean, I'll work for free more often than not. I mean, the gig I'm doing now is for The Fix, the yeah, magazine, yeah. which you've read... I really like that magazine because it makes me laugh. There's writing in that. It reminds me of an old sort of American uh, magazine from the 50s, 60s, when they would put stuff in that you'd never, you wouldn't see anywhere else. And a lot of great people came out of that. And it's a really nice magazine. That's why I'm doing these gigs. I mean, I can assure you it's not for the money because I'm probably working at a loss at the end of this. But then why did you get into stand-up in the first place then? I wanted to be an actor. And I had one or two things going against me. I found it very difficult to stick to a script. I wasn't very good at working with other people. And uh, as several people, when I auditioned later, told me, I was awful. Were you? Oh, awful, yes. You've done some little bits of acting, though. I have. I've been in some wonderful productions. Should I name them? Yeah, Because I, I know what they are. <laughs> uh, I was in Casualty. What I, did you do in Casualty? I played Abs. You know the character Abs? A guy called Jim Redmond, who's right. now, bizarrely, a stand-up comedian. Yeah, I remember him. <laughs> he gave up a lifetime in soap operas to work up the creek on a Sunday night. The guy's nuts. Yeah, I was his mother's boyfriend. Right. Toy boy. Okay. I, I hasten to add, because she was about 60. <laughs> and uh, so you did that, and also... The bill. Yeah. I was in the bill, yeah. And I was actually, the director said he'd never seen a performance like it. Really? Yes. <laughs> Tell me about your role in that, because I read about it, oddly enough, in The Sun. Oh, really? Yeah, they're big fans of mine. Oh, I played a, a car salesman. I love that. I played my character. You couldn't get Simon Pegg, could you? I played a car salesman who uh, got his window put through by what he thought was a green activist, but it turned out to be her daughter. I've given the plot away from you, I haven't seen it. That's all right, I don't think... I got hit on the head by a sign. And then didn't you get chained up? Chained up? No, chained no, that, up. that was a completely different film. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's on the lower shelves of society. Did I invent that then? Are I'm you, sure you... I read that at the end they like handcuffed you or something. Oh no, i tell you what happened, that was actually casualty when they was in a pub in Bristol, one of the roughest pubs in Bristol on the state. It really was a rough pub and outside the pub, two of the cars were stolen from the crew whilst we were there. That's how rough it was. But anyway, we were in this pub and the police were there. There was a big fight scene and then the police all came running in and they arrested everybody except me because I wasn't involved in that. And then I came in later and I had a little scene with Abs and his mother, and all the police running, and they were actual real police, they were like off duty, and they were just standing in as extras and stuff, and they came running in, and I was standing to the side of the set, ready to walk on as they arrested everybody, and as they came running in, I made my step forward for my cue, and this one policeman grabbed me, and arrested me as well, and I was going, oh no, no, I'm not to be, I'm not to be. and he put me up again, and he, my hands behind my back, and I was in chains in seconds, it was really impressive. 
flipping hurt, but he wouldn't listen to me. I was like, I'm not, I'm on next time. You've already got just a time actor. Probably just thought you were being really convincing. Yes, well, he was, good God. And let me plug this as well, because yeah, I don't know if they've actually... Do. This is, uh, there's a film called Getting Off, which was made by Alex Ganley and Chris, who was more recently a paedophile in EastEnders, made this fantastic film about uh, nutcases in Manchester on the Moors. And it, I, I got a little part in that. I played a man who was sexually obsessed by the weather. How does that manifest itself? Uh, me running around the moors in underpants <laughs> at f- five o'clock in the morning in a pair of grey underpants, running around having simulated sex with moss. It was like a Lady Gaga video. <laughs> so what's it called? Her latest song. No, no, no the film. Oh, Getting Off. Getting Off. Getting Off. Well, we get I don't know. I looked it up the other day and found a little bit about it, but I don't know if they've actually even finished it yet. I mean, it was a proper Happy Mondays production. It was just wonderful. So I'll keep an remember. eye out for that. So you were talking about when you started out doing acting. You were a red coat as well. Yeah, that's right, Marsha. At Butlins. That's right, Lee. How old are how, you? How old, how old are you? How old was I? 42. When you did it? I was it. one of the older ones, yes. You were a nipper, right? <laughs> when you just... No, I was, about, I was 20, I think, 21. I was surprised to hear that you were... Well, you, you sing and you do stand-up. But... I'm old-fashioned, you see. I say, I say, I say. That's where I come from. That's what I was brought up in. Really? I went to work. You see, when I wanted to be an actor, because I couldn't get into any drama schools, I mean, some of them, I couldn't even get an audition. That's how bad I was. I went to work at a theatre because I thought if I work backstage at a theatre, I'll be able to do some ASMing and maybe get a little part and stuff like that. And the theatre I went to work for was the Arcadia Theatre in Skegness, the last commercial theatre in the British Isles. In fact, the last theatre ever performed at by Arthur Askey. He died shortly afterwards. It's now a car park in Skegness. And I went to work there as a stage manager because I thought, you know, there'd be plays and stuff, but there wasn't. It was a production of Broadway Melodies, Summer Show, and Pinocchio, a kid's show. So I worked with that for six months and ended up doing little bits in that sort of thing. And I was very much a variety, working men's club upbringing. I started doing clubs and social clubs. What kind of stuff did you do? I'm doing the same act. I haven't changed it. Really? In 30 years. I see no reason to. I just changed the crowd. And so how did you go What about that Clement Attlee, eh? What's that all about? See, it's as funny now as it was then. So how did you go from that to the red coating? That was just, you know, just one of those things. It was a way to spend the summer and get uh, lots of, you get lots of education. You're on stage, you do an 18, 20-hour day, and you're actually on stage in some form or another, if you want to call bingo calling. You've got a microphone in your hand for about 10 or more of those hours every day. Wow. So you get very used. I mean, even the dinner times, you're up talking, making announcements. You're just constantly on. And you do learn an awful lot. You certainly learn never to do that again. How long did you do it for? Six months. <laughs> really? Is yeah. that all? At the end of six months, the entertainment uh, supremo, I think they called her, sat me down and said, Booby, tell us what you want, and we'll tell you what we're going to offer you. So I said, I'd like the train ticket. Eight a time. Bad enough, you know. It's, you don't want to do it forever, but it's good fun. So what did you do then? Were you done with the acting for sure? Killings, that sort of thing, you know, a few blags, a couple of hits. I went to see an agent in Nottingham and got on the um, the Northern County Breweries. In Nottingham at the time, there was a brewery that had about 40 gigs in Nottingham alone. 40 gigs, you imagine that? I mean, just every just night. Just in the same city? In the same city, because all these, all in pubs. There's one called Poets Corner, which is right in the middle of a green on a huge housing estate. You can't drive to it or even away from it because you haven't got wheels. But yeah, I did that for a while. And then you branched out to Sheffield and surround because I lived in Nottingham. You started doing a radio show at some point. Oh, yeah, that was Radio Lincolnshire. You did that for two years? Two years, yeah. Did it make you a local celebrity? No, that's the other thing. I don't want to be famous. I really don't. 
I just say I don't. You've done okay. Well, from what I know of you, just through having seen you do a lot of stand-up, that doesn't surprise me. But there's a few things that you've done. Oh God! You did Kings of Comedy. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I watched it at the time when oh, it was good. on. You watched it. I did. I did. My manager at the time said to me, "I tried to watch it. I lasted ten minutes." <laughs> Can we explain what it is? This was this thing on E4. It was sort of like bit Big Brother bit you know pop idol or something in that there was a competition element there was a big brother watching people through cameras all the time element but it was comedians yeah Yeah. and it was sort of alternative comedians and old school comedians and you were in it and andrew maxwell was in it and uh tiny tiny little man who we had on the podcast talking about he's actually much smaller than he looks (laughs) and you're very tall so it was anyway a bunch of other comedians on it yeah maxwell was talking about of course he was talking about it he won he'll never shut up about it but you with a hot favourite and you walked off. I walked off, yes. Yeah, well, I, I think what, uh, he has a self-destruct button. Who was that agent that said that? What, said that of you? Yeah. Well, hang on. So, first of all, why did you do it in the first place? If this is how you feel about being I didn't think I was going to win. And... I thought I was probably going to lose and I thought that would be humiliating. So, I, I just legged it. I mean, why did you go on the show? Oh, uh, 7,000 quid. Yeah? But were you not worried about the fame aspect if you're saying that you don't like that? Like, did you not do, think... Do, do you are the only start? person I've met who's watched it apart from a geezer in Brighton? Really? No, nobody saw it. It wasn't widely watched, I didn't think. But presumably you didn't know before you went on it how widely watched it would be. Well, I'm not sure I'd recognise anybody from QVC, and I pass through it all the time. So was it just a money thing? Yes, it was, actually. Yeah, I was very, very short of money at the time. But did you think this is going to help in terms of profile, or...? Oh, no, I didn't think that, no. No? I thought it was not going to be watched by many people. That's why I did it. Then why did you walk off? Because I thought I was going to lose, I told you. Even though you were the favourite, like no, everyone no, that's thought the you thing were going to win. to me all the time. I always lose, and then it's, it's just humiliating. They build really? me up, and then they knock me down. Yeah, and I thought, well, I'm not letting Maxwell stand in front of me going no, 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 because he would <laughs> never, never give it up. So I thought, well, I know if I walk out spectacularly quoting something about not wanting the British public to waste their money voting for me, which is something that I said very pompously before I left. I wouldn't have you waste your 25 pence on this vote. Because television voting, I've always found phone voting. Honestly, cannot believe that people would invest money like that. That's just such an odd thing to do with your money, isn't it? To express an opinion that no one is going to know about. And I know that it's absolutely above board. What the companies do is absolutely across the world above board. And I would never say that there was anything, you know, it's a complete load of nonsense. It's, well, that's why, anyway, so that was my front, but my real reasoning behind it was that I thought if I actually walk out, it will look like, you know, if I get smashed, and, which I did, I got actually hammered. He kept giving me free booze. Very funny. Never give an alcoholic free drink. Don't do it. Or this is what happens. So, yes, I thought if I walk out, then, obviously, it doesn't matter. I can walk away being the hot favourite, and everybody will think, ah, yes, well, Maxwell may have won, but only because Boothby walked out, and that's why I did it, to make the rest of Andrew Maxwell's life a living hell. Because <laughs> every time he holds up that king of comedy trophy, at the back of his mind, he'll be thinking, ah, now, to be sure, me mother would say, I should give it back. Because that's how he talks. So you did that, you did... Panel show stuff. People don't believe this, do they? What? The, this is another problem I have. People believe what I say. And that's what worries me about people. And I talk absolute rubbish all the time. And apart from to my very close personal wife, I don't mean any of it. It's just crap. It doesn't matter what you say, it matters what you do. So what I say is just, it's all a joke. And a lot of it isn't funny, but that's another reason why I'm still here. But it is, it, it, none of this is serious. I just want to make that clear. I'm, I'm actually just making it up. I'm trying to get a laugh. That's... So painful, isn't it? It's your job. Oh, I know, I know, but I'm not very good at it. But clearly you are. 
Go on. Other TV stuff. You did never mind the Buzzcocks. You haven't twice. done twice. How do you find that kind of panel shows and things? Panel shows, they're great. Is that the sort of thing that you would stay away from for exactly this I, I reason? That's just what I mean. I say all this stuff, mm. and I'll say I would never do this. I would never do that. I would never do the other until somebody offers it to me, and then I do it immediately. What do you think of the phenomenon? Do, you do, know, do, 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 do. Michael McIntyre, and I mean, just this kind of explosion that someone goes on Michael McIntyre, they go on live at the Apollo, and then they're playing stadium. This has pretty much always happened, though, hasn't it? I don't know. It feels like there's a big. It, I mean, Newman and Badil was supposedly the first stadium comics this country's ever seen, but Steve Martin was doing the stadiums in America quite a long time, and Eddie Murphy. And, I don't know. It's, it's just that it's a new one every time, though. But if you look at Lady Gaga, there's a very strong similarity between her and Madonna, isn't there, in the way up? Right down to even have Italian sounding real names, and people really like them. But they become, I mean, Lady Gaga, there's a you know, very talented woman, but there's lots of really talented women. Why just pick that one and spend some? If you invest enough money into something, you're going to get enough money out of it, are you? I don't know if it's just a business thing. But generally, it does feel like at the moment people have an interest in comedy and, and are aware of stand up in a way that they haven't been for they a while. Never have been before. Not never before, but not for a while. Yeah, yeah, it comes and goes. I mean, I actually did read someone talking about the new alternative thing has kind of come because everybody's talking about the same thing, which is what the alternative thing was all about, was everybody's talking about their mother-in-law. And I always found that quite funny. Do you remember? I don't know, you're probably too young for this, but Benny Hill got taken off the television. And Jim Davidson also was uh, stopped from doing his Chalky Whiteley impression. Do you remember that? He used to do a Rastafarian guy, Chalky Whiteley, and all this. And that was his friend, and he would do jokes with him. And uh, Benny Hill used to do his Japanese, ah, you bury area, you Japanese, you bury area, with Wei Wei Wong, or Chinese, I can't remember who he was impersonating. And this was considered racist. And, and at the head of this, the alternative set came forward, at the head of it, with the end to racism. You know, wow, the new comedy, the new comedy. And who was the biggest thing to come out of it? After they'd cancelled Benny Hill after all those years and they'd stopped Jim Davidson doing that, who is the biggest one? Harry Enfield. Doing what? Doing Stavros, an Englishman pretending to be someone who can't speak English properly. And he became the biggest star we had out of that alternative thing, which I just found. I think that's funny. And it's true yeah. that now there is... Imagine big... Benny Hill sitting at home. They've cancelled his show after 20 years. He's the most successful British entertainer. And he puts on the television to see what they've replaced him with. And it's a guy doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> It's not funny. It is funny. I want to ask you about... There's Lady something Gaga. else that you did. Not Lady Gaga. No, I well, like I can if you like. I just, can I just make this point? Because yeah. I've got it in my head. The, the average age of the music buying public is between 9 and 30, 8 and 13 years old. 9 and 13 years old. Is it? And music... Yeah. In like, it, it, where, in MP3s, any, right. downloading, watching the videos. Yeah, always has been. When singles were around, it was even then 9 to 13 years old. Right. It's that age group. Children, who we're essentially talking about. Which means that Lady Gaga, Shakira, all the um, acts, they are children's entertainers. That is what they do. That is their living. Can you imagine if you bought your eight-year-old or nine-year-old birthday party, a children's entertainer, and came through from the kitchen with volivants, and there he is dry-humping the sofa <laughs> to rhythmic music with women thrusting their breasts into the children's faces and rubbing their... I mean, that one of Lady Gaga where she's sort of having simulated sex with a blow-up dolphin. Come on, kids. Lady Gaga's on. Hooray! Oh, what's she doing? Stimulating herself sexually. Hooray! It's not Lady Gaga. It's Conan O'Brien. I know Conan O'Brien. So you went on Late Night with Conan yeah, O'Brien. six foot six. NBC show. Is he really? Mm, he's an enormous man. So you went on his show yeah. on NBC in America. Yes. This, to me, sounds like a big deal. Was it? How did it happen? I think from Canada. From Montreal. Yeah. Which is the big kind of TV festival. I mean, yes. it's not a TV festival, it's a comedy festival where people go to get spotted. Did you go over to America and have meetings with execs? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did all that. Did yeah, you? That was a lot of fun, yeah. Was it? The first meeting I had, I did. You see, I didn't understand what was going on. How did it come about in the first? Well, you went to Montreal. I went to Montreal, did some gigs in Montreal. Right. You just do 10 minutes, you know, like a gala or something like that. And then people come up and give you their cards afterwards. We were just taking the people's cards. 
they would come up and give you their card and we'd take their card and then when somebody else came up and gave us their card we'd give them the card of the other person who just gave we were just passing the cards around different people you know you go can i have your details here with my details on my details on there and they just wouldn't look they just put it in their wallet and it's like yeah they would have loads of cards of all their mates who are also executives so did you have all the meetings with executives oh yeah i got to go meet uh, fox tv asked me to go to los angeles that was great he got a lot of flights back and forth from Los Angeles. I met a few uh, executives and stuff like that. But he said, I can't keep my mouth shut. That's my problem. So why? Would you say things that they didn't like? Well, there was a couple of occasions I did things which were just wrong, really. You know, just rude. But I was a bit naive. I mean, I went to one meeting with all the executives from one television company. And I had no idea why I was there. I was just sitting there listening. And I thought, well, these are all very, very rich people. I mean, they're on the lowest. The tea lady's on 100 grand a year, you know. The one of the guys I met, he's dead now, Brandon Tartikoff. When I met him in his office at New World Pictures, no, he just sold New World Pictures for a personal profit of $90 million. And that was just his New World Pictures thing he told me. I might be getting the names wrong, but he just made $90 million. His office was at the top of a tower block in Los Angeles, and it was a huge, incredible place. $90 million he just made. His salary was in millions per year. And as he you know, went into his office and I met him, and I said... You know, I was reading about you today, making that 90 million off one. He went, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I asked you a question. He said, yeah, go ahead. I said, what the fuck are you talking to me for? You know, why? You've got 90 million quid. Why are you wasting your time in downtown Los Angeles in this office talking to me? Was your manager Go to the beach. (laughs) Yeah, my manager hated me. What did he say, though? What, Brandon? He said, oh, I find you very entertaining. It's just, you're just weird. So I don't stand with Alan Sugar. You say, Alan Sugar's got millions of quid. What do you want to talk to those idiots for? If he doesn't like them, which he clearly doesn't, what is he going to do something with his money that's more fun? Unless he gets off on making idiots look like idiots. Well, and it makes him famous, and that's a kind of sexy... people. That's what I don't understand, is people with money want to be famous. And to me, you see, my initial attempt at fame was purely for the money, which you realise afterwards, you actually don't, you know, you can get quite well known without making any money as um, certain criminal friends of mine will tell you. <laughs> but I guess if you've got loads of money, then you, it's that whole thing of, like, money can buy pretty much everything. So you go, well, what's left? Well, that, what's left is, is the beach with a nice sea lapping up against it and you sitting on it with a nice drinky. But I guess they don't have that. They want, they they want, want yes, the I, That's what I don't understand. I can't the... get it. They want it. And the thing is that people like stuff, don't they? And there's, thing, there's fans and there's nutters. A lot of people are nutters. And the ones that like stuff that they see, they see it, they like it, and that's it. It's gone. It's not, you're, not, you're not an obsession to them. But the ones who are actually going to really be obsessed by you, you don't want to meet them. They're mad. They buy whale on me, you know? I imagine. I don't know. I suppose it's like people going into stand-up that I think that you are quite the exception in the way that you think of it and in the way of your saying, you know, if you don't necessarily need to make the money, then you don't need to do it because I think most people, I think some people go into it because, you know, the joy of finding things funny and a lot of people go into it because they want to stand up and go, love me, love me, and then have a room full of people laugh and go, that's it. Yes, it's such a long time since that happened to me. No, I I suppose you could say that my apparent lack of desire for fame is born out of my incredible lack of success over the past 25 years. So I've just created this as an excuse to say that I never really wanted it anyway. But I, as I said, let me, I let think me tell you, you. Let me tell you the story. This is, this is this is a good one. My management loved me for this. I made them look so good. I went to see uh, a benefit evening for Peter Cook. And they, lots of people came on and did uh, little pieces about Peter Cook. And it was lovely. It was lovely. And Dudley Moore was on, comparing it. And he was great. And I got drunk. And the Americans don't know what drunks are. Americans don't understand drunks. To an American, a drunk is someone who's got a problem. Anybody who drinks has got a problem. But anyway, I got just really hammered. I got really, and I was heckling Dudley Moore. I was that drunk. I was shouting things like "Nurse, Nurse, Alfie Dukes," and he was going with it. But I was so drunk, I didn't realise. They carried me out in the end because I was disrupting the show. 
And I went back to the hotel, I think, and I drank more. And about an hour later, I'd wake up and I felt so very, very ill. I had a proper 15-year-old hangover, you know, proper, I'm going to be... Oh, I'm going to be ill, ill, ill. And I had a meeting with Warner Brothers, I think it was. And they took me to the meeting, the management. And they, brilliant, these people, they hired a car, which was a Mustang, a two-seater. There was three of us. Genius. And I had to sit in the back. And I'm feeling pukey anyway. And then we go all these speed bumps to go into, and it's getting more... And we get to meet the Warner Brothers executives and we go into reception and the meeting is in two minutes. And at the point, I just got to reception and you walk in through a door into a garden and then you walk through the garden, a circular garden, and there's a circular building in the middle of the circular garden which you go into, which is the reception. And then you walk back out to the circular garden and go to the rest of the buildings surrounding that. And I just went to reception. I said, can you tell me where your restrooms are, please? And she said, oh, yes, through back into the garden and right side. So I walked away from her managed to open the door, just got about two feet into the garden and projectile vomited my entire breakfast into their flower display. And not just like the once. You know, there was one like enormous, a slight pause and then like two or three more. It, just, it, was, it was like something out of Team America. It was just non-stop, all this Canadian bacon. And uh, yes, I felt fantastically much better after that. And who saw it? Well, you couldn't miss it. They'd clean up in aisle three. They, they were, there was Mexicans coming out the walls with brooms and fumigation gear. It was just horrible. I mean, I ruined their display. How was the meeting, though? Oh, well, this is a funny thing. We're sitting, <laughs> we're sitting in the meeting talking to this geezer. Another one, you know, the guy's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Wasting his time. And anyway, so I'm sitting, and my manager says, uh, he said, I, I believe you were rather unwell. And I said, yeah, I'm sorry, all over your flower display. I do apologise. Warner Brothers celebrates 75 years. <laughs> Boothy Graffo celebrates what he had to drink last night and the breakfast he had this morning. And uh, this guy said to me, I believe you were, you were unwell. And I said, yeah, I've just, I've just ruined your flower display. I do apologise. And my manager brilliantly said, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think you had a bit of bad meat at breakfast, didn't you? And I completely innocently said, no, no, it's just because I was pissed the night before, Richard. And we got out of the meeting and he went, when I say something like that, you bet me up. Um, bare Naked Ladies. Yes, aren't they wonderful? You supported them on tour. I did, yes, yes, literally. They are terrible, terrible uh, debauchers. Honestly, the amount of sarsaparilla they get through on a tour. They've got a very specific audience, Bare Naked Ladies. A beautiful audience. 6,000 people at the Hammersmith Apollo. And I watched a bloke when they'd just been on for about five minutes. And I watched a bloke with uh, four or five pints, plastic pints, holding them together in two hands. I think it's going to go over it. And he goes to the back of the Hammersmith Apollo. There's 6,000 people crammed into the room. And it's just a wall of backs. And he's got all these pints. And I said, how far in are you? And he said, about halfway. I said, well, you've got no chance. And he went, oh, hang on. He said, excuse me, mate. And someone went, oh, yeah, oh, beer. And the whole crowd part, beer coming through, beer coming. They're so polite. <laughs> Do come in. Yeah. And then didn't you go on a cruise with them? Yeah, I've done a couple of cruises with them. Tell they, me about the cruises. They take over a cruise ship, like a 15-storey cruise ship with lifts and tennis courts and swimming pools. And huge, thousand-seater theatre in it. It's like the Titanic, only, only it stays afloat. And um, they have about 30 bands on the ship. And we go away and do about four or five days cruising around the Caribbean or Mexico, just doing gigs all around the ship. I've never been on a cruise, and I've always wanted to, which I realise is basically based on carry-on cruising. <laughs> Very much what it's like. The only <laughs> thing is, this is a North American cruise, and a lot of their audience are North American. So not all, but a, a percentage of them are very, very large. And um, then you realise it's actually not just a random thing. It's a deliberate action. They have an all-you-can-eat buffet at four o'clock in the afternoon. And these very large people wobble over to form the queue first off. The Funny, the fattest ones are always first in the queue. And there's two all-you-can-eat buffets, one on each side of the ship. And there's a man there saying, right, you first, you go to that one. 
your second you go to the right one, your third you go to the left one, you go, and they even up the fatties. Seriously? So the ship doesn't roll. Wow. You should see the size of some of these beauties, man. Was it fun, though? Was yeah, it? really fun. That's the trouble with the Americans. If you say morbidly obese, all they hear is more. It's Wonderful. called Ships and Dip. Ship and Dip. Ship and Dip. Yeah. Um, so you've got this DVD, which is out. Oh, yes, it's out now. It's on Amazon. It is uh, currently at um, 45,000 in the charts. And it is a live show that you did. In Brighton with a six-piece band. Boothby Griffin and the following people. The following people. Isn't that a great name for a band? It is. I like it. I'd like to point out as well that with the DVD out, there's a really lovely video on YouTube at the moment. Is there? You made it. <laughs> Doing the alphabet song. Oh, yes, yes. The- I made that in my mate's garden. It was one of those just decided to do it, and then Martin Soane, who's like the uh, creative a facilitator, it was his back garden, and all the props and stuff are his. It's a lot of fun to do. So if people just search on YouTube... Just put in Booth Begraver A to Z, 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 because there's two versions and one's a bit blurry. Okay. So this show, so it's April the 1st, Les Square Theatre. Oh, yeah, and I've got some great... I'll tell you what, I've got Nick Pinn. He's the finest violin player you'll ever heard. He's a fantastic guitar player. He plays the bass pedals with his feet at the same time. He's a stunner. And I've got Thesis Gerard, who was a founder member of Stomp in the early days. But he went on to work with more successful people like me. He's on the percussion. Then we've got Kevin Eldon being Paul Hamilton, the poet, which is what everyone should aspire to. It's the most beautifully observed piece of Eldon, just Eldon in himself. It's just to be in his company is enough. Just to rub yourself against him and say you've been near him. A super special guest who we can't name because he probably won't turn up. And Phil Kay. Uh, Phil Kay. Is Phil Kay doing it? Oh, Phil Kay. Well, then, you know, worth it for Phil Kay alone. I mean, he's only down for 10 minutes. He may well be on for four hours. And so it's all in honour of the... I've got to mention Antonio oh, Fortuny as well. Oh, yeah. Yes, Antonio, the guitar player, is going to be there as well. He's, he said last night, though, he's, you know, he's Italian, you can't trust him. So this is all in association with The Fix, and it's right Les Square Theatre, 1st of April. It's a hell of a show. I tell you, I, if I wasn't working that night, I'd probably go and see it. <laughs> so the Les Square Theatre is lessquaretheatre.com, and your MySpace is probably the best one. Oh, yeah, the MySpace, which, you know, the record company set that up for me. MySpace.com forward slash... I don't actually look at it, but if you want to go to it, it's got details. It's got links to your DVD on there. Oh, Oh, yes, yes. Or you just go put Boothby DVD into Google. It'll come up. It comes up as the Amazon site. And you can see that there's a DVD, which is number 47,000, and a CD, which is actually doing very well. It's at 107,000 in the charts. Okay. I mean, that's the highest I think it's ever been. I'm very pleased with that. Booth Freakrofo, thank you so much for oh, coming. Thank you, Marsha. What a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.